What was it like to hear about the JFK assassination or America's triumph over Hitler? We're seeing Queen at Live Aid. Our past is a collection of stories that bring us to now. Welcome to the Eyewitness History Podcast, where we view history through the eyes of the people that watch the events that shaped our world. Here's your host, Josh Cohen, and these are their stories. Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to the Eyewitness History Podcast. This episode, I speak with John Kirby and Libby Handros. John and Libby are acclaimed figures in documentary filmmaking, and they've joined forces for a new groundbreaking docuseries called Four Died Trying. John Kirby is known for his award-winning productions. He directs the series. Libby Handros has over two decades of experience and brings her expertise as a producer. Four Died Trying goes beyond official doctrine, featuring candid interviews that offer fresh insights into the lives and legacies of these iconic figures. Seven years in the making, the series re-examines the untimely deaths of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., Robert F. Kennedy, and Malcolm X. I really enjoyed speaking with them, and I hope you enjoy it. And now I give you John Kirby and Libby Handros. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. I'm here with Libby Andros and John Kirby. John and Libby, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Yeah, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you guys. I want to get into the series shortly. But first, please tell our listeners briefly who you are and what you do. Libby, perhaps we'll start with you. Sure. John and I have been business partners for over 20 years, and we produce documentary films. And this series has been in production since 2016. So we are very pleased that we're coming along to the premiere. Before this, we produced a film with Lewis Lapham, the former editor of Harper Magazine, called The American Ruling Class. And Somehow or another, we've always been looking at these issues of power and who rules and what it means and things of that nature. So I think that kind of sums it up. Excellent. And Lewis Lapham of uh, Lapham's Quarterly as well and Harper's. Yeah, I'm a big admirer of his. Ah. (laughs) I began at our office. He began at the first issue in our office. Wow. Fascinating. John, how about yourself, sir? Well, Libby summed it up. I mean, we both come from a documentary background. We've been in business together for 20 years but you know before that and during that we've done films together for you know or apart for pbs hbo you know the american rolling classes for the bbc we've done you know films for all kinds of festivals a film about a wind farm scant or a controversy called cape spin that went out to theaters and festivals that actually featured bobby kennedy jr and another facet and so, yeah, we've just, you know, I started my first job was out of, was doing a three-part series for Discovery Channel on the CIA. That was, you know, as the assistant editor. And Libby comes out of doing a first nationally televised press criticism show. So, you know, where we analyzing the media, right? So this has been our background and this is, you know, who we've been and what we've been doing for a long time. 
Excellent. Thank you both. Very interesting. So yes, so getting into the docuseries called Four Died Trying explores the deaths of John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy. What inspired you guys to explore these particular assassinations? Well, I should say I should give credit to our executive producer, Mark Gordon, who was talking with a friend of ours who said, you know, what do the children of the assassinated think about what happened to their parents? Mm. And at first he was thinking about including John Lennon. But once we all got involved and we were speaking to our kind of spiritual advisor, Jim Douglas, who wrote the very, you know, the essential book, JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters, he insisted rightly that we do Malcolm X as well. And so that, you know, so those are the big four assassinations of the 60s. There were many assassinations beyond them in the 60s. John Lennon deserves to be investigated, reinvestigated as well. But that's how it came about. But we've been working on a film like this or this concept for a long time. You know, we were had a film in development called The War on Us, U.S., And we were always going to include the assassinations in that. You know, we see this, you know, these are state crimes against democracy. And, you know, I've always been interested in in looking at those. And so we had a a background in them. We've only just kind of come to learn more as time has gone on. And there's more to learn. You know, this is one of those stories where the layers of the onion just keep peeling and peeling. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned the state crimes. I just had on a gentleman and we discussed I don't know if you're familiar with COINTELPRO. Well, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Most of our films about, in a way. Yep, yep. I'm most of the series is about, yeah. So I know, obviously, there's a focus on John F. Kennedy's assassination. My understanding is that you're also calling into question the magic bullet theory. I'd love to know what made you guys focus on the magic bullet theory, and then perhaps for our listeners, maybe you could explain briefly what it is. Well, oh, sorry. I'm happy to do that, but we're definitely focused on all four assassinations equally. Yep. John, Malcolm, Martin, and Bobby. And we actually, certainly in the first season, we don't really get involved with things like trajectories and, you know, who was shooting from where. And (laughs) we're looking at the big picture. We're looking, first of all, at what these guys were doing and, you know, how those things might have gotten them killed. Right. I mean, you talk about John Kennedy. When he's trying to end the Cold War, withdraw from Vietnam, he's fighting the banks, the steel companies, the oil depletion allowance. He's, you know, he's basically managed to offend every power sector in society. He wants to, you know, break up the CIA and scatter it to a thousand pieces, as he famously says, after he's, you know, you know, misled by them, betrayed by them for the Bay of Pigs invasion. And, you know, he's trying to make peace with Khrushchev over the heads of his generals and behind the backs of his State Department. And, you know, they just can't stand that. And then you have, you know, this Lyndon Johnson figure who is, you know, desperate to be president and who is a creature of the military industrial complex that Kennedy is trying to rein in. So anyway, so that's Kennedy. And then, you know, briefly you go through Mm -hmm. Malcolm, who was bringing charges against the U.S. in the world court for its treatment of, you know, black Americans and was becoming an international figure who was a major embarrassment during the Cold War to the powers that be. He was joining forces with King. He was, you know, after he left the Nation of Islam, he was becoming a major independent voice. And he had, you know, renounced his, you know, prior 
kind of, you know, ultra segregationist views. Then you have Martin Luther King, who, you know, became a major danger, if that I don't mean to ride there, but he became a serious threat when, you know, he brought all his moral force and clarity to bear on the Vietnam War and gave a speech on April 4th, 1967, at the Riverside Church said, you know, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world is his own country. And it, you know, it broke his heart. And then he was planning an occupation that the authorities feared would turn into an insurrection in Washington, D.C. And it was going to be a multiracial poor people's encampment on the Washington Mall. That did end up happening, but without his leadership, you know, it didn't go where it might have gone. So, you know, he was a major threat to them. And then Bobby was running for president. Bobby Kennedy, a uh, Senator Kennedy, was running for president. And even though he publicly would support the Warren Commission, he privately knew that it was garbage. And he was obviously going to withdraw from Vietnam. He was running on that premise. And, you know, he was really the candidate of the poor and dispossessed. And, you know, they didn't want him getting anywhere near the presidency and having the power to perhaps do the things that his brother was looking to do, like dismantle the agency. So that's our big picture focus. In the second season, we will focus on things like, you know, the magic bullet. You know, these are the kind of self-evidently ridiculous things that happen. And, you know, for people who don't know, the magic bullet is a bullet that was found on a stretcher intact, essentially, as if it hadn't hit anything that supposedly created seven wounds in two people. And, you know, that's actually difficult to do. <laughs> it's, and it also did that by defying various other laws of physics. Well, it left lead in the bodies of these people without having actually having to shed any lead, which is amazing. And then, of course, you know, it turned left and right as it was doing its thing. So that is the theory that the government presented. And, you know, so it's self-evidently ridiculous theories like this that make this what our mentor and, you know, the godfather of all assassination researchers, Vince Landry, called a false mystery. And we can talk more about that later if you like. Excellent. No, th thank you. I really appreciate that, John. And actually, you answered my next three questions into the folded as well. So we we'll saved some time there. I appreciate it. Okay, good. <laughs> but I had one thing. You know, what all four men did was they opposed the war in Vietnam. And as such, they were coming up against the military-industrial complex. And that is a very, very powerful entity across not only the private sector, but the public sector, the military, et cetera, to get in the way of. And that was not a good, you know, not coming out against the war was not healthy. Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> it's good for your health. It was, it was a healthy, it's a healthy impulse. But when you're you know, dealing with the, those people, it's not good for your health. No, no. Even Muhammad Ali couldn't get away from it. That's um, right. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. So I'm a bit of a nerd for stuff like this. I'm always excited to hear how the sausage gets made, so to speak, what the research is like, who you talk to, you know, what sources you went to. I'd love to hear a bit about that. Libby, perhaps I'll start with you if that's OK. Well, you should see our library. You know, there are like, I don't know, 5,000 books and counting or more that are part of this project. We've interviewed over 120 people that we've actually put on film. I mean, tape, so to speak, and it's still growing. And that doesn't, you know, and then there's all the people that gave you something, but they're not worthy of hauling the camera out for. So I think we kind of started with the premise, as John said, you know, what do the kids think? And then kind of what do the kids 
of maybe some of the potential assassins think. And we expanded from there to first generation researchers like Vince Landria. And we've, you know, Jim Douglas. And we have a lot of last interviews. We've got the last interview with Dick Gregory. We've got the last interview with Mort Saul. And we really tried to cast a wide net to find people who somehow or another knew the gentleman that we're dealing with. So we have a beautiful interview, for example, with Adam Walensky, who was Bobby Kennedy's speechwriter. His, you know, he was Bobby's Teddy Sorensen. And so, you know, looking for the people who knew these men. And of course, because of the age of everybody, it's hard to find people who were still alive. But we found lots of people in their late 80s and even early 90s who give you hope that you can grow old with dignity, keep all your marbles and keep ticking. I mean, Paul Schrade, who was shot that night with Bobby, he died just recently, but till his dying breath, he was all there and, uh, you know, spent the last years of his life trying to get Sirhan freed. So we really, you know, cast the net wide and we read before we go interview anybody. We read everything that they've written. We really try to do our homework. And I think it shows in what you see on the screen. Very much so. John, anything to add? Just to clarify for people who know, Sir Han, Sir Han, you know, the alleged assassin of Robert Kennedy is, you know, Paul Schrade, who was shot that night, was trying to free. And Sir Han, of course, still to this day, languishes in prison, even though the coroner's report clearly exonerates him from the killing of Bobby Kennedy. Is Bobby Kennedy was shot from behind at close range, point blank range. And Sir Han was in front of Kennedy and never got closer than a few feet. So there's no way he could have done the killing. So, you know, this is very much in living memory. This isn't just ancient history. This, you know, people's lives are still being profoundly affected directly by this. And of course, everyone's life has been radically altered as a result of these four men being assassinated. You know, the country might have taken a much different turn had these men lived and their programs been allowed, you know, to unfold. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's a wonderful life when, you know, you sort of see the what if the Jimmy Stewart character never existed and the place, you know, looks it's like a den of iniquity. The town has become a rundown kind of uh, hellhole. And that, unfortunately, is the reality that we live. in. We live in a country that is, you know, broken down. In a world that has, you know, not fulfilled the promise of, you know, the Enlightenment or any of these democratic hopes that we had for the human race, they have been, you know, curtailed and forestalled by the deaths of these men in particular and subsequent state crimes against democracy. Yes, indeed. Thank you. So the docuseries obviously challenges what you might call mainstream narratives, official narratives, however phrase you want to use. You just touched on it, John, with Sirhan Sirhan. I'd love for you to maybe give our listeners maybe a bit of a teaser about uh, some of the other narratives that you challenge in the series. Well, we have a kind of a scoop that we hint at in the film, which shows the direct collusion between the media and the government. You know, Mm -hmm. the idea we have a free and independent press is completely demolished when you examine the Kennedy assassination in particular. And you can see a very direct example of that, that we show you in the prologue, you know, but again, you will get more in depth, but you get a hint of it. In the old days, when you printed a magazine, you had to make these big glass plates and, you know, all kinds of 
you know, metallurgy was involved in <laughs> to make these high-speed plates. And the issue that came out on October 2nd, 1964, that was the kind of booster issue for the Warren Commission report, which, of course, was the official statement of the Warren Commission that had been appointed by Johnson, which should have been called the Dulles Commission, as everybody knows, because Alan Dulles, the former head of the CIA who Kennedy fired, was probably the de facto head of it, had released their report. And there was a kind of a accompanying issue of Life magazine. And there were big four color images of the Zapruder film, you know, enlarged in the magazine and then captions that went with those photographs. And amazingly, our character, our friend Vince Salandria was bought that issue and was able to predict on the day he got it that they were going to have to change it. He saw from the photograph and the way the guy's head, you know, the way President Kennedy's head was depicted as moving, the way it contradicted what the caption said, he knew that they were going to have to change it. So he went and he kept buying issues. And lo and behold, they had, once again, they screwed up and they, well, they issued another one. But this one had a different picture, but it also didn't match the caption. So Salandria knew that they were going to have to do another one. And he found three at the time. He was able to guess this and it shows direct. And he wrote people at life and he tried to figure out, you know, exactly what had gone on. And he discovered that and other researchers have discovered that this would have been an incredibly expensive thing to do to break the plates and start all over again, start a high speed press, stop and start at midstream. We have found a fourth issue of this Life magazine, which was unknown to researchers. So basically, there are four issues. That means three times someone said, wait a second, we made a mistake. You got to stop that. You got the wrong picture with the wrong caption. It makes us look ridiculous. You got to stop it. So that's a clear cut example of direct kind of lock jaw control over the press that the government exerts when it matters, when it matters. So that's one of the stories. You know, there are innumerable stories, so many stories, you know, after 120 interviews, I mean, some of these interviews lasted 15 hours. Wow. So we've got, you know, incredible stories about what really happened, you know, the girl in the polka dot dress and what's really going on with Sirhan Sirhan, who's a kind of person, you know, who's in a trance when he does what he does. And, you know, the realities of, you know, we've got the FBI agent who discovered a packet of materials clearly indicating that the government is involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King. That's going to be an upcoming story that we tell. It, Mort Saul, the fact that this amazing comedian who wrote jokes for President Kennedy became really one of the only members of his inner circle, the only one, who gave up his career in order to get the truth. I mean, he kept talking about it. He wouldn't stop talking about it. And he eventually became a researcher for Jim Garrison, who people know as the subject of Oliver Stone's masterpiece, JFK, starring Kevin Costner. So he actually went and become, he was deputized oh. and became an investigator for Jim Garrison, which is an amazing story. And so, you know, on and on it goes. I mean, the release of the Zapruder film, which changed everything. Dick Gregory, another comedian activist, made that happen along with Bob Roden, who we have an interview with. And they went on the Geraldo show and he had a show called Goodnight America. And they played it in the 70s for America, who had never seen the Zapruder film. 
which of course shows the president's head snapping back violently to the left, proving that he was shot from the front. And, you know, people were shocked and horrified and it led to a congressional committee. And we tell the whole story of that congressional committee, which, you know, has been buried. So we're, you know, there, there are so many stories to tell and we're trying our best to kind of create an oral history, a kind of, you know, a message in a bottle to the future. Beautifully said. Right up my alley with a podcast called Eyewitness History. I'm all about the oral tradition. Um, right. Absolutely. Libby, anything to add? You know, one of the, my favorite interviews is with Marie de Lorenz, who was Fidel Castro's mistress. And she got enlisted then at one point in time, got enlisted by the CIA to try and kill Castro by putting poison in the cold cream. But she couldn't go through with it. And she, you know, was there. She saw, she calls him Ozzy, you know, when she was in New Orleans way to Dallas right before the assassination. So it's just, you know, just a wonderful character. And it's her last interview as well. Yeah, I should clarify. She had the capsules to put into Castro's milkshake, but she freaked out at the last moment and put them in her cold cream where they dissolved. You know, they were capsules of arsenic or something. And she not only saw the Harvey Oswald in the woods around Lake Pontchartrain, she also was, you know, with Frank Sturgis, she traveled to Dallas as Mark Lane helped show in a civil suit that involved Watergate burglar and CIA master spy E. Howard Hunt. So, I mean, that's a whole story. I mean, that's an incredible story that no one knows about the civil trial that Mark Lane successfully, you know, defended because Hunt was doing for libel against a magazine called The Spotlight and a former CIA officer named Victor Marchetti, who was basically implicating Hunt in the assassination. And Mark Lane was able to prove that, indeed, there was good reason to believe that Howard Hunt was involved in the assassination. So, And Marita Lorenz plays a huge role in that. So anyway, tons of stories, and they really will and could go on for years. Hmm. Excellent. Thank you. I really appreciate it. One question is kind of swirling in, in my head right now that I just feel compelled to ask, and I have a feeling a lot of it will depend on my tone. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, in honestly, in, you know, in, in good spirit, but I'm terribly curious to know what either of you think of when you hear the term conspiracy theory. Well, you know, conspiracy theory has been weaponized. Yes. And was given to us by the CIA in the late 60s. There's a memo that the New York Times got through the Freedom of Information Act, which talks about, you know, it's during the days of the Garrison trial and investigation, and it's going out to all the station chiefs and their assets. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it. And customers love it. Calitrin Healthy Weight Loss. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Lynn lost over 35 inches and 45 pounds. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free Plus, free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word WITNESS to 30605, and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text WITNESS to 30605. And it's about how to counteract the Garrison trial, and that's where the term conspiracy theory is used for the first time. It doesn't have well, to be weapons. It doesn't have to mean people with tinfoil hats. I mean, a conspiracy is any time more than one person is sitting there talking about doing something, and they have very, very successfully turned anybody into who has all you have to do. You have an alternative theory about whether or not the light across the street turned green just now, and you're a conspiracy theorist. And it's looking for the truth is a grand old tradition, and it shouldn't be stopped, and it shouldn't be weaponized, and people shouldn't lose their jobs over it and all sorts of things. Right. No, I mean, as Libby says, I mean, obviously it wasn't the first time the term conspiracy theory was used, but the memo is a fascinating memo. It's amazing that we have it and you can read it all for yourself. You can just type in, you know, CIA conspiracy theory memo and it'll come up. And of course, there are all kinds of sites that try to apologize for it, like Snopes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But essentially, you know, that phrase is mentioned once, but a number of other methodologies are suggested by the CIA to its assets in order to debunk and discredit people who are questioning the official story and not just Jim Garrison, but Mark Lane and a bunch of other people. And so that is, you know, there were concerned, you know, the the memo begins our concern, you know, that we are being blamed. We this agency, in fact, is being implicated in the murder of President Kennedy. And here's the things that you can do to get your friends in the press to help us diffuse that idea. I mean, it's a, to me, it's a clear indication of the guilt of the CIA, of their involvement in the assassination. They're not like, just ignore these people because there's nothing there to be seen. They're like, this is what we need to do. You need to talk to all of your friends in the press and you need to write book reviews, feature articles, you know, anything you can think of to make anybody who questions the Warren report and maybe even suggests that we were involved seem crazy. And that's what they've done. And you can track and researchers have done this. We did a study on this for the film. Kevin Ryan has done a great study where you can see the number of mentions of conspiracy. The word, the term conspiracy theory Hmm. go from less than 100 a year in The New York Times and The Washington Post to thousands a year. Thousands. So that is how they control people's thinking. That's how they make it socially unacceptable for you to think about important things. Well, you mentioned sort of the what if scenario earlier, and I am terribly curious to ask you, I I don't mean to focus 
solely on John F. Kennedy, but I am curious what you think our country would look like now had JFK not been assassinated. Well, you know, the war in Vietnam really devastates this country in all sorts of ways. And we are still living in the act of war, the war in Vietnam. It changes the curriculum and the values on college campuses and in our society. It changes how people feel and relate to their governments. The war in Vietnam dashed the hopes of the great society and the ability to, you can't have guns and butter. So a lot of the poverty programs that JFK was thinking of and Lyndon Johnson perhaps was going to try, as he said. With allegedly putting in place. Yeah. Yeah. The money isn't there to do it because you can't feed an army and feed a city. And so therefore those programs become dash and government grows, but it doesn't grow in a good way. And everything just becomes very messy and very ugly and people lose hope. They don't believe in anything anymore because wars used to be a way of galvanizing a population. But this war becomes so ugly and nobody supports it. And then the troops come home and they're not supported because everybody thinks it's their fault that this happened. So there's just a chain reaction of terrible things that happen. And we're still living it. You know, there's no way of coming back from that. I mean, there might be, there should be hope, but the point is it wrecked the country. It totally demoralized everyone, as Libby says. And, you know, the whole trajectory that we were on, you know, JFK represented a major interruption in a certain trajectory, which was the trajectory of American empire after World War II. And sadly, you know, he was about to kind of steer us back towards the ideal of the American dream. And that effort was, you know, totally derailed by his violent murder, you know, in broad daylight to send a message, basically sent a message to everybody, even if it was only a subconscious one that, you know, you're not going to try to do these kinds of things, you know, and you're not to think about it. And we're in control and you're going to shut up now. And this is how it's going to be. And so really the worst elements of the society, the irresponsible powers took over. Maybe they saw themselves as responsible because maybe they saw JFK as a traitor for daring to make peace with Khrushchev. But I can tell you something. If, if anybody else had been president during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we'd all be dead. We wouldn't be talking right now. If Nixon or Lyndon Johnson, they would have listened to their generals and they would have sent in the Marines and, you know, or bombed Cuba. And there were Soviet troops there and Soviet missiles ready to go. So we would have ended up in an escalating nightmare of limited nuclear war that could have expanded beyond a limited war. Because at that time, people didn't realize just how long lasting and, you know, the possibility of nuclear winter and all this kind of thing. Yeah. So the point is that, you know, he was there for a, a very important time. Thank goodness he was there. Sadly, by their having canceled him in the way that they did, they canceled a realignment with the American promise that we are still feeling to this day. There hasn't, in my view, there's a great new book by a woman named Monica Wiesak called America's Last President that everyone should read. It really goes into great detail about all of his incredible policies, his anti-colonial policy, is, you know, things like the Alliance for Progress. I mean, you want to talk about what if? Imagine if the Alliance for Progress, his plan to elevate the middle class in Latin America, to create a middle class in Latin America, had gone forward. What would our southern border look like right now? You know, 
No, definitely. You would not have millions and millions of people needing to leave their country because their countries yeah. would perish. That's right. I mean, what if the Peace Corps had fulfilled its mission instead of becoming like a front for the CIA? Yes. You know, I mean, an unbelievable set of programs that he initiated and, you know, that were making a difference and changing the world. And by the way, they were making a difference in the lives of ordinary Americans. Mm -hmm. He was managing to raise the minimum wage while keeping inflation down. He was able to, you know, think about conservation without talking about austerity. You know, he was really probably the smartest guy we've had in the office and the one who cared the most about people. And the last one, in my view, who wasn't simply a tool of the military industrial intelligence complex, because every single one after that, in my opinion, has been that they were not going to make that mistake again. The, you know, they thought he was a cold warrior and all this. And you know, that he'd play ball, and he didn't. Again and again and again, he didn't. And, you know, he's the last one that you can see actually making independent decisions on behalf of the people of the United States and the world. Extraordinary. Yeah, it's incredible to think about, depressing to think about. Indeed. Thank you both. We spent a lot of time on JFK, and by no means regret it, but I wouldn't mind pivoting slightly to Martin Luther King Jr. I'd love to ask what that research process was like and what you learned from it. Well, you know, everybody hearing Martin Luther King's excerpts of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Yeah. But Martin you know, went beyond that and he started with civil rights and then he was moving on to, you know, basically rights for everybody, for white Americans, for black Americans, everybody. And John mentioned earlier the Poor People's Campaign that was going to unite, you know, people of all colors and races, et cetera. And that's when Martin became very, very scary to the establishment because he was no longer just, oh, he is a black civil rights leader. Oh, that's OK. He was, you know, galvanizing an entire country and an entire population, just not a segment of the population. And that in combination with his stance on the Vietnam War made him an incredibly dangerous force to deal with. He was the power that was coming, aligning behind him was very scary to the establishment. I, she said it all. I mean, if there's anything you have, else you have. Dad, we can get into more detail, but that says it all. No, that's and, you know, our yeah. process. Like I would say that, you know, we started with Bill Pepper, who is a somewhat controversial figure, but he was a friend of Dr. King's. Bill Pepper went to Vietnam. He was already against the war and was already thinking about it. But Pepper went to Vietnam and took pictures for Ramparts magazine. And when Dr. King saw those pictures, he said, you know, he famously or it's mentioned in a number of books. But he pushed away what he was eating and he said, that's it. I've got to speak out against the Vietnam War. He couldn't bear to see these children maim be on recognition by Nepal. You know, we were committing horrible, horrible acts of, you know, democide against the people of Vietnam in the name of saving them from communism. And it was, you know, so ugly and so awful. And, you know, so many innocents were being needlessly mangled and destroyed and killed. And, you know, it was only going to make people more in favor of the communists, the way we were doing things. I mean, it was just preposterous. So he's sitting there. So he's like, that's it. You know, even though everybody in his, you know, in his inner circle, not everybody, but many of them said, you got it. You know, Lyndon Johnson is our great civil rights friend. I can tell you, by the way, we're going to expose that Lyndon Johnson was no friend of civil rights. And we are going to show that in detail. But in any case, the point is, 
that, you know, he was being cautioned by the people around him to stick to civil rights. And he said, you don't know me. You don't know me if you don't see that I see these things as all interconnected. Okay, the giant triplets of racism, militarism and extreme materialism, they're all interconnected. And so he contacted Pepper and, and, you know, who'd taken these pictures and they became friends and they, you know, Pepper was one of the people who was planning with him. It was like a committee on the new politics. They were doing a convention and various things. And then King was killed a year to the day after he made the uh, Beyond Vietnam speech and came out publicly against the Vietnam War. April 4th, 1967, he's killed April 4th, 1968. And so, which is kind of incredible. Uh, so, you know, we begin with, you know, Pepper's book, An Active State, was the one that got me to realize that King had been killed by the government. And, you know, it's again, it's a false mystery. I mean, <laughs> you know, and that's the concept we can talk about or not. But the point is, you apply the honest government test to these things. Would an honest government not secure the crime scene? Would an honest government say, in the case of Kennedy, you know, dry clean Governor Connolly's clothes who had just been shot. Would they bang out the dents in the limousine? So we had just been shot full of holes, you know, send it back to Ford to be rehabbed. Would they allow the prime suspect to be killed while in police custody? I mean, the guy who had just, you know, they did the same thing with the King assassination. They, They didn't secure the crime scene. They didn't interview key witnesses, you know, and they find this perfect little bundle, you know, oh, it's got the guy's radio with his prison ID and here's a rifle and it's everything we need. The whole case, it's all sewn up. And, you know, this fellow, James Earl Ray, has, you know, he happens to have all these amazing, high quality fake passports that have names that are affiliated with, you know, national defense companies. I mean, the whole thing is just ridiculous. I mean, you know, so again and again and again, you run into this concept of, you know, what would an honest government do? And they implicate themselves again and again in each of these things. And the only mystery is us. Why don't we do anything about it? Why can't we confront it? You know, why can't we, you know, stop them? What are we going to do about it? That's the mystery. Thank you both so much. I just have a few questions left and then I can let you guys go. I'd love to know as the filmmakers, what aspects of the production do you think were the most rewarding? Were there specific, this sounds like almost a dumb question to ask you, but Perhaps I'll phrase it this way. Was there a particular moment that surprised you during the making of Four Died Trying? You know, a lot of the interviews were very hard to get. Some of the people we thought would be easy turned out not to be. And I think every interview has kind of been remarkable in a way. You sit there and you're listening to people talk about these things, their memories, what happened, how it affected them. And I think that's kind of, for me, is always... The remarkable part of doing this, this hearing people talk to you about it and they're sharing with you, you know, for them, in some instances, very deep moments. Adam Walensky is talking about writing the famous GDP speech that Bobby Kennedy gives. And as he's starting to recite it, it brings tears to his eyes. And that's legitimate. And things like that, that to me is what is rewarding about doing this is talking to people and hearing what they have to say and and learning that you know perhaps you know we had a theory and seeing it's kind of true that sadly our government was behind all these nations that our government was maybe more evil than we even thought it was yeah and then also i would say it, it just then to that point it's remarkable to see how many people in the inner circle of these men believe that i mean that's the kernel of our executive producer's great idea 
that actually expands out beautifully because it's not just what do the kids think. It's what, you know, people like Andrew Young, you know, who was ambassador to the United States, to the U.N. for the United States and mayor of Atlanta. But he was working in her circle. He was a witness to it. Well, what I was going to say is he's when a king's inner circle and he was there, he was a witness to the assassination of King. And he, you know, he believes that J. Edgar Hoover murdered Dr. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. So, you know, th- there are many instances of that where people close to these people knew the truth. And, you know, sometimes they did say something and sometimes they kept it to themselves. But yeah, so we, I would say it's, it was rewarding to really get, you know, one degree of separation away or less from these incredible events and not just the assassinations, but the, you know, the promise, the hope that each of these four guys represented that, you know, that the idea that there could be Americans like that, people like that, who could lead all of us out of, you know, this despondency and apathy and despair and into a, you know, a new frontier, as Kennedy called it. Wonderful. Thank you both. What are you hoping audiences will take away from this docuseries? What, what's their walk away? Interesting question. I think I hope that people will walk away with the fact that of knowing the truth and to use a cliche, this truth can set you free and that the founders gave us the tools to elect people who will really care about us and care about what happens in the future And we should go back and look at that and use the system and elect people who will do the right thing, you know, don't not keep, you know, and run for office. If you have an idea and think you can do something, don't be afraid. Run for office, run for school board, run for, you know, chief librarian, but get involved and do something and don't just let the same cycle perpetuate itself. We can change this. And I would also say I would hope that people, you know, if they're armed with this understanding, will be much harder to fool in the future, right? We want them to not fall for every state crime against democracy that comes down the pike. And increasingly, these are kind of more and more global, right? I mean, these are, this isn't just limited to America these days. I mean, things like the war on terror and the lockdowns, all these things are kinds of global technocratic crimes against the people. And, you know, people have to, you know, not just go gently into that good night. They've got to learn to think critically and kind of resist and not just, you know, allow them to cram another magic bullet down their throats. You know, they've got to fight back. Well said, both of you. Thank you. The docuseries, once again, is Four Died Trying. I'd highly recommend it. John Kirby, Libby Handros. This was such a pleasure. I really appreciate you guys taking the time for me. Well, thank, you. thank you for having us. And if I could just add, what people yes, are going to be able to see is the prologue. It's kind of like an extended trailer. It's an overview of what you're going to see. That's what's available now. Mm-hmm. We are going to put these out there as we can. And as people show their interest and involvement and get involved with us on Patreon, we filmed the interviews, but we will absolutely call on people to help us with, you know, the archival footage, you know, is so expensive. They do not make it easy to bring people this history. You know, you could almost call it a a conspiracy. They're trying (laughs) from showing, you know, the history as it happened. And they want to review, the networks want to review how you use things. So we need help 
getting the rest of this series out there and we're going to make them as they come. They're not going to be, it's not like you can just sort of gorge on them like you can Downton Abbey or something. They're going to come out. Each one is like a short film that, you know, it'll be like Star Wars. You wait for the, well, you used to anyway. In the old days, you'd wait for the next Star Wars. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to just binge watch Star Wars. No, you'd wait for the next Star Wars. Right. So hopefully we're going to give you the next Star Wars every few months. And, you know, that and then everyone should just stay involved. You know, look at the website, www.4dietrying.com and, you know, stay and get on the mailing list and find out when the next one is and help support it all. And eventually we'll offer posters and T-shirts and stuff and, you know, start conversations. People should start conversations about this stuff with, you know, and bring it to class if you're in school and bring it to work and bring it into your everyday thinking so that you can better appraise the nature of the world you live in excellent i think that pitch might be the best note to end on guys <laughs> i oh it's my pleasure i really enjoyed speaking with you guys it was fun chatting with you i hope you both have a great thanksgiving you, you too. too thank yeah, you yeah send us the link when it's up yeah i will absolutely my pleasure all right okay. thanks a lot have a good one thank you thanks for listening to this episode If you'd like to support Eyewitness History, the easiest way to do that would be to subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. For more information on Eyewitness History, along with show notes and links to resources, go to ParthenonPodcast.com, where you can also listen to some other great podcasts by the Parthenon Podcast Network, such as Scott Rank's History Unplugged, Steve Guerra's History of the Papacy, James Early's Key Battles of American History, and Richard Lim's This American President, along with many others. Thank you. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, Go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform.